0: In America in 2022, it's hard enough being gay or a person of color. Well, imagine being both. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive.
1: What's going on? He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Call
0: a code. Get Nambia back from the nurses station. Heart's still working, means the are is still firing. We just need to get a message through.
1: For the few, the rights of U.S. corporations to extract from the land of Central America and exploit the people of Central America. What we've really seen as a financial sector, that's gotten out of hand. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. People don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man.
0: One of the biggest motivators for the Republicans in the midterm election is, of course, the culture war. If one is a person of color, the discriminatory effects are quite well known. If one is a gay person, the effects are also no surprise. And we can't forget the war being waged against immigrants who are said to be invading innocent America. But what if one is all three? A gay person of color from an immigrant community. Wow, that's the jackpot. There's the familiar but erroneous belief that individualism conquers all in America. As a result, the majority of us who are white and straight really don't have an idea of the exceptional piled on hurdles to the common goal of being one's unique self, the person one was always meant to be. But wait, there's more. Imagine being a gay male from a culture known for its reverence of a specific, rather narrow version of its masculinity. Well, there's a new book that we'll discuss today with its author. The title of the book is Brown and Gay in L.A., which is filled with moving stories of young men who exist at these difficult, often ignores, margins of immigration, race, and LGBTQ issues. Our guest is author of the book Brown and Gay in L.A., Anthony Ocampo. Thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive.
1: Yeah, thank you. It's great to be here.
0: Anthony Ocampo is professor of sociology at California State Polytechnic University in Pomona. He's the author of The Latinos of Asia, How Filipino Americans Break the Rules of Race. And he's co-editor of Contemporary Asian America. Tinhouse and V-O-N-A, Voices of Our Nation's Arts Fellow. He has published essays in GQ, Catapult, Color Lines, Gravy, and The Chronicle of Higher Education, among others. His work has also been featured on NPR, NBC News, BuzzFeed, and in the LA Times. Well, again, thanks for being with us. This is quite the unique time in American political and cultural history when there are powerful right-wing forces determined to reinforce and solidify the domination and control straight white Protestant culture would like to have over all America, despite who we really are. One can imagine it's a special challenge to be both brown and gay. What did you see as the need for this book? How did you come to write this book?
1: Yeah. my my entree into this book was both uh, academic and political as well as personal. So you know, to give you the nerdy academic reason, I was in grad school at UCLA and I was studying um, in, in sociology in my areas were immigration and race. And what I noticed as I would read books and journal articles, or even turn on the TV when I would, you know, see immigration or race on the news, what I noticed was that almost all the stories I would hear were about people who we might presume as heterosexual or straight. And at the same time, this was also a period of my life. This was my early 20s when I was coming into my own as a gay man. And so (laughs) after I do all my UCLA business, I'd make my way over to West Hollywood, California, where I'd be in these social circles um, with other other people, other men that were very much like me, um, person of color, grew up in an immigrant family, also gay. And I realized that I was experiencing life in the United States and community, and you know, everyday experiences um, in a very different way than the the stuff I was reading or seeing on TV with about immigration, race, and sexuality. uh, I'm sorry, immigration and race, and then of course, when it comes to sexuality, a lot of the images that I had, the limited images, were almost overwhelmingly white gay men. So uh, I thought, hey, (laughs) there's a need to center this community and tell, you know their story of what life is like in America from their lens. And I think we'll get something valuable out of that Um, on a personal level. Sure. This was also, you know, I, I can't I can't not say that this is personally motivated too. I just felt like I needed a blueprint for how to navigate my own coming out experiences. And so that's part of the reason I took on this study as well.
0: Yeah, I, I find it interesting you say, with every interview, I came to feel like I was part of something much larger than myself. I, I think that's that's a good point. And that talks to uh, the research process. Tell us about the process you did that was you used to write the book and how it incorporated uh, yourself.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, I for a very long time, when I started my Pathway to becoming a, a sociologist and a professor, I was deathly afraid <laughs> to do anything related to sexuality because I felt like if I did any work on on, on queer studies or, or or gay studies, I would automatically be typecast or marginalized in in you know higher ed. And so it took me a while to be honest to to untether from the idea that that studying gay people was just you know not a good idea. And when I decided to to embark on writing this book, I was already part of LGBTQ people of color communities for a decade. And I had, I knew a lot of people. <laughs> and so I, I, of course, for the book, I didn't interview anyone that I knew personally, but I was one step removed from a lot of the people that I interviewed and I would just, um, I set up the, um, I set up the project. Um, I wrote, I wrote some proposal. I wrote a grant to, to get a little bit of funding from a university. And then to be honest, it was really just getting to meet people at gay bars, gay clubs, pride events, um, college local colleges in LA and just asking them, Hey, do you want to tell your story? And so uh-huh. we would post up at a Starbucks or a, or a Chipotle or a cafe <laughs> And they would share their life story in a way that a lot of them never had the chance to do.
0: Well, wow, that's good. Good for that must feel good for, for these people who were, uh, dare I say, coming out to be interviewed uh, to to tell the story. And as, as some people know, I'm I'm a politically politically active white liberal. What a shock! But of course, I know <laughs> <laughs> I know many many gay people. But you know what? virtually all of them are white. Well, tell us about what you found among those who feel they don't fit the archetype of the ideal gay man within predominantly white queer spaces. What is that archetype? And please tell us about the effect it has on people who are not white.
1: Yeah, so I think that for the the young men that I interviewed, around the time they were coming into their queer identity you know they were they were in college or they were above the age of 18 they had a little bit more freedom to do the things they want in life and so a lot of these explorations started you know between the ages of say like 18 and 21 and what they found sometimes is that when they went to the spaces that were designated as gay friendly like whether it's a a pride center on campus or or a gay student organization on campus or a gay bar in somewhere in los angeles what they noticed was that for the most part these were predominantly white spaces and and that those those were moments where um racial difference and class difference actually really came into play there was this young man that i interviewed um like the name i use is armando it's not his real name but when he went to college um, he was excited to to meet other gay people but he found that a lot of them were just from a completely different class and he grew up in a super working class latino neighborhood in in la and a lot of his friends grew up in like new england so i think like the wealth the wealth differences the 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 racial differences those were a big rift that um hindered their ability to become part of those communities in the same way as say like Mm. a white guy their same age
0: yeah and i can imagine that you know the ideal again you know we we kind of worship individuality here but to be your best self you know if if you're if that community even that allegedly safe space is like eh, you know not you're not white (laughs) so i can imagine that's kind of an uncomfortable feeling
1: Yeah, and I would love to add something, too, about um, desirability. So, I mean, the way attractiveness and who's considered a member of these communities, who's Mm. considered attractive or hot, (laughs) let's just use the (laughs) real word. Um, This was very much organized by race. And so when it came to gay men of color, the ones I interviewed, they found that their entree into these communities might be because, oh, I'm being desired by someone there, but oftentimes they only had two choices: they could either be exoticized, or they could be excluded. So there wasn't much in between for them. Wow,
0: interesting. That's that's good for people to know. I think you know that's something that, frankly, people don't really get that because, you know, as white straight people, we don't have that experience. But that that's interesting to do that that research, and the idea is to uh, to learn and to grow. And of course, the right wing doesn't want that. They want people, you know, just to not know it all. But anyway, that's a different story. You you, <laughs> foc- you focus on the sons of so-called new immigrants who arrived in the United States after the passage of something, frankly, I had kind of forgotten about, the Immigration Naturalization Act of 1965. I remember the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Acts of 1965, but I don't remember what the INS Act was. What was it? What was its intent and how might that be a dividing line as it relates to your focus.
1: Yeah, so in the early part of the 20th century there was a lot of efforts to exclude um <laughs> undesirable immigrants. Oh yeah. ones <laughs> yeah. from like Asia um or darker skinned folks um and then of course in 1924 the US Basically, it was like, we're closing the borders, like non-white immigrants. And uh, as you know, there were recent members of the past administration who were like, we need to resurrect 1924. (laughs) Um, But, you know, when when Johnson was president in 65, there's this Immigration Naturalization Act that I don't actually think, from, from what I've read, Johnson anticipated that it would open the floodgates for um, for immigrants from Latin America and Asia to want to come to the U.S., which is, which is interesting because, I mean, the U.S. likes to get itself involved everywhere around the world. So part of that means that you instilled the sense of the American dream all over the world. So why wouldn't immigrants be coming <laughs> to the U.S. after 1965? So my parents are part of that group of people that came as professional Filipino immigrants, but there were a lot of other immigrants that came of all different occupational statuses and, and class levels. So um, racially, the United States became way more diverse. It became, it's still a black white society in a lot of places and a lot of ways, but sure. you know, we have this new, um, like um, brown folks were emerging the government and these countries didn't really know how to categorize them. And so there was a lot of reshuffling when it came to the way we understand racial categories in the United States.
0: Oh, interesting, because, uh, yeah, there's been a, a lot of anti-immigrant uh, history in these currently United States. And, uh, and you know, I, there was anti Uh, Asian, anti-Eastern European, my background, Uh, but uh, 65, yeah, it's started to change. And I I think that's a very good thing. And uh, just a little uh, parenthetically, I think had it not been for the war in Vietnam, Lyndon Johnson would be remembered as a pretty darn good president. That's my feeling. Uh,
1: Yeah, there are a lot of things that (laughs) happened. I have an unusual amount of trivia knowledge about Lyndon Johnson, because in oh. fifth grade, we had, to, we had to choose one president to do a report on, and Kennedy got taken, and I was like, oh, crap, who do I do? And I ended up doing <laughs> Lyndon B. Johnson.
0: <laughs> Interesting. Well, I don't think dogs liked him particularly, because I remember that scene of him picking up his, his beagle by its ears. But let's not get yeah. too far afield here. I, I, as a partisan liberal Democrat, c'est moi, I can't help but notice, and frankly, you know, as I look at the elections coming up, I can't help but be troubled by the pronounced swing to the right among a lot of Hispanic Americans, Latino and Filipino gay men, raised in almost exclusively deeply religious Catholic families. You know that and giving the ugly context of the blatant Trump-led racism against brown-skinned immigrants. I, I would like to understand this shift to the right, you know, because Trump was, you know, trying to shut the border, build a wall. My guess is, but but this is just a guess, it's a, concerns about manhood, the dominant, the male dominant culture, which overtakes, it, it, maybe over, can overtake concerns about racism. What can you tell me, please, about this? I, it, it confuses me.
1: It is. It confuses me too. And, and <laughs> good. in a lot of ways, the way you're, the, the way you talk for it is very similar to the way I am around my Trumpy extended family, like little, little comments under the breath. I I don't, I didn't get it for a very long time. And so um, a couple of years ago, I ended up getting assigned a story and which, which involved going to a, a Filipinos for Trump rally and the Latinos for Trump rally. Oh my! And it was an oh my moment (laughs) better you than me (laughs) i know it was uh it was it was like physically difficult to be there and to hear what was going on but sure. i think a lot of people assume that like abortion is the driving force for why latinos or filipinos would vote for trump they're like oh you know anything to anything that gets abortion abortion to be um unlegalized like we're gonna go for it even if it is this heinous character that it that we have to support mm. but but what i realize is that it, it's actually much more nuanced than that and I really, really started to notice that what was what was happening was that there were these immigrants, children of immigrants who were really buying into this notion that there's a good kind of immigrant and a bad kind of immigrant. So even though, you know, Asians were targeted by Trump or Mexicans were targeted by Trump, there is this belief among this segment of, you know, right wing People of color that I am not like those oh. immigrants that you're speaking oh, about. Interesting. Um, <laughs> it's really kind of gross <laughs> to say the least. But that was the that that was happening. A lot of like, I'm the good kind of immigrant, the one that did it, like came here the proper way, the one that is ascribing to American ideals, the one that's not trying to divide us by talking about race. Uh, And I think that really catapult people in a direction toward the right. And once you're sort of embedded in those spaces, I have to give it up to these right-wing organizations. They're quite sophisticated. I'm the good immigrant. I'm the one that's law-abiding, the one that came here the right way. And I think that um, what I was saying earlier was that right-wing organizations are quite sophisticated at trying to, dare I say the word, like I think that right-wing organizations are, are quite sophisticated at once they get you know someone's foot in the door they're really good at cultivating a sense of connection with them and and in a way that they they demonize Uh folks on the left and try to gaslight the messages that are out there and then they in my opinion from what i've noticed like love bomb (laughs) um any person of color that decides to be part of the republican contingent because and then i think like What that does is that the Republican Party can be like, look, see, we're not racist because we have, you know, such and such who's Filipino or who's Mexican-American and they support us. So what is your problem?
0: Yeah, and I can see that and and, and I can see how people who are welcomed like that kind of appreciate it and feel somewhat special about that. Interesting. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. It's a heavy lift. We need everybody involved in this. Uh, and the show today, we're talking with uh, Professor Anthony Ocampo, who's got a new book, Brown and Gay in L.A. And we're learning stuff that well, a lot of people don't really see. And I, I know, you know a lot of white uh, people, and it's hard enough to come out you know, as gay and white, non-Catholic families. What is unique about coming out to immigrant parents who are probably Catholic? That's got to have some special difficulties.
1: Yeah, lots. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think what I what I started to notice the more and more I spoke to these young men, and of course thinking of my own experience, was that a lot of the the Latino and Filipino men I spoke to when they thought of their lives, it was very much this idea that like what I do is very much reflective, is reflective of my parents or my larger ethnic community or even my country, even if they weren't born in Mexico or the Philippines. And so, there was this burden of representation that a lot of them really embraced from a really young age. And so, what that meant was that anything that deviated from them being like the perfect immigrant son oh, wow. was 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 not good. <laughs> And, and that was a, that was a, that was, it was the case that folks felt like if I'm, if I'm gay, that's going to ruin my parents' American immigrant, immigrant American dreams. Huh. The Catholic thing though, of yeah, course, adds a, a new element. I mean, most explicitly, there were folks that went to churches where the priest would publicly re- like denounce mm-hmm. same-sex marriage mm-hmm. or um, gay content in movies and all of other issues like abortion and, and euthanasia. I remember that from um, the interviews and even my own Catholic church. And so it was not a welcome space. And for for a lot of these young men, they grew up believing that to be Mexican is to be Catholic, to be Catholic is to be Mexican. And same for Filipinos. And so if you if they feel ostracized from the Catholic church, they're going to feel ostracized from their ethnic community as well.
0: Yeah, interesting point. And who wants to be ostracized? You know, if you don't have exactly, to, <laughs> It's you know, why come out if you can keep it sort of down and quiet and you know, get along to go along? It it, it does help quite a bit. And can I add? Yeah, please. Add one thing I'll go right ahead. Yes, please do.
1: Uh, for for certain men of a certain age, what was very clear was that Prop Eight. the the ballot initiative in 2008 in California that was trying to essentially ban same sex marriage. Uh. That was actually a a watershed moment for a lot of young men who were sort of on the, like they were still kind of Catholic ish, culturally Catholic Mm -hmm. for, for a lot of them, the way that the church handled the way they discussed proposition eight became the push out factor for, for, for a good number of the, of the, uh, gay sons of immigrants that I interviewed.
0: Interesting. I can imagine. I I had kind of forgotten that. So we're talking about 1965, which I had forgotten about in 2008. <laughs> uh, it's tough getting older. Uh, w- w- tell us, please, we've talked a little bit about this, about the, the power of traditional definitions of masculinity. I mean, right now we have uh, uh, far right-wing senators like Josh Hawley who Are promoting what a lot of people think of as toxic masculinity you know white male control absolute domination and control what what about the power of traditional definition of masculinity in hispanic and filipino cultures of what is acceptable masculinity tell us about that please
1: yeah oh gosh i'm just reminded that i was an undergrad the same time as josh holly but anyway i digress um masculinity in Filipino communities, Latino communities, you know, there's this concept within uh, Mexican American communities called machismo, which is this idea that like men are dominant, women are subordinate, uh, men sort of, um, men are sort of, what do you Men are sort of um, supposed to be assertive and and not emotional uh, and similar things happen in Filipino culture. Uh, I think that what's, what's interesting here too, is that, um, these young men are also navigating definitions of gender that are in the homeland, so they have to Ooh, yeah. adhere to the rules of masculinity in the U.S., particularly in their immigrant community. But also, when they go back for like a, you know, home visit to the to Mexico or the Philippines, they have to, you know, they have to really showcase themselves as as Whew. masculine men, um, and that's that's that gets really stressful.
0: Well. So, what is it like for a a gay Mexican man to go back, you know, and, and visit relatives in Mexico, and same with with the Philippines?
1: There was this this Mexican American college student I interviewed who who talked about actually he would go home to Mexico on a regular basis to his parents' rural town, and he remember one summer the the neighbor in in his in in this small town in Mexico because he was gay he unfortunately took his own life and oh what he really what was it was terrible already but what was even more terrible what compounded it was the reaction that he witnessed from the family oh, it no. seemed like they, there was no sort of sense of empathy it almost as was as if well he you know that's that's he did this to himself because of the lifestyle he chose and I think in the in the case of the Philippines, there were um, what's interesting in the Philippines. There's, there's there's sort of like a very public image of of queer people in in communities and in TV with um, like very flamboyant um, right. gay men who transgress gender. It's not unlike things that happen here in the U.S. But I think what what they see when they go home is that when it comes to these gay men who are typecast as gay men, as like the hairdressers or the, you know, the fashion uh-huh. the ones that work at the boutiques, what they see is like, Oh, these men, the only purpose they serve in society is for comic relief or they're just oh caricatures. They can't, oh. they can't, they can't be like real members of the family. They can't have their own families, so to speak. Um, of course, these are not like, these are not the, the, they didn't, articulate this when they were children because it was more complicated. But over time, it was clear that that's the that's that's the message that was internalized.
0: Wow, that's quite frankly, that's that's upsetting and depressing. What what can I mean, if people, you know, gay people go back to Mexico or, or, or Philippines is there change starting to happen there? I mean, I know we're talking about America and what can be done in America, but you know, we, we all have—most of us have feelings and and don't want uh, people to, to feel like they have to hide and be hurt. I, I know there's, and we'll talk about some degree of, dare I say, progress here in America. But w- but what about those areas? What what can you know, Mexican, gay Mexicans, gay uh, Filipinos do in in those uh, when they go back. Uh, what have they? What have you learned that that works?
1: Yeah, I think like the U.S., um, Mexico, and the Philippines are really diverse places, and the regions really define like how welcoming uh, they are of gay people. And in my experience in the Philippines, I haven't been in a couple of years for obvious reasons. <laughs> um, I was really surprised by how accepting my um, gay family members were over there. I brought, I was there with my partner. They were uh-huh. super welcoming. It was almost um, the best part. It almost felt uneventful. Good. <laughs> that that was really great. And, and, you know, my partner and I, and, and, and you know, other friends of ours that we've gone to like Mexico city, other friends go to Puerto Vallarta. And the sense I get is that in those places that it's quite, open you can live your you can be your best gay self in those places too i think what ends up being more challenging is is smaller towns which isn't Hmm. unlike what what happens here in the u.s Uh, Um, smaller towns are less metropolitan less exposure to diversity and in any case whether it's race or sexuality the less you're exposed to folks interactionally it's going to be really easy to fall back on the stereotypes that that come to mind
0: that's a good point and I, i was very impressed, I have to say. I saw a Ted Koppel interview about uh, the 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 notion of Andy of Mayberry when there was that show on TV back in the in the '60s, and he interviewed people in the less densely populated, almost entirely white, you know, Middle West. You're right. There is a big cultural difference there. They they want to keep it that way. And mm-hmm. and somehow they feel threatened, whereas in the here I am in the northeast, you know, it's a bit different here. And on the two coasts, it's a bit different. But your book is actually about L.A. How did you choose yeah. that title, Brown and Gay in L.A.? That's a pretty hip place, isn't it?
1: It is. It, it rhymes, which is nice. <laughs> True. <laughs> uh, publishers love that when the when oh, geez, you're right, catchy. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Um I went through a lot of titles in my head some which were like super academic and boring so I'm I was uh, happy to land <laughs> there. <laughs> but LA is um, a
0: big city. It's not it's not a a, a a you know there's a lot of people there. It's it's pretty cultured.
1: It, it th- is. And and historically LA has been the 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 mecca for for folks that want to like live their best gay mm-hmm. with well, whatever part of the country they're from or what are, state or country they're from la is the place to be right mm-hmm. at, at the same time you know it, even if la has a lot of pockets where you can be gay publicly and open like west hollywood or silver lake it's still the case that um gay spaces are very racialized and uh. then you know like communities of color are very heteronormative or any community is very heteronormative. And so um, I think that has changed tremendously over the past 10 years in LA. Um, and so it's, uh, I definitely get the sense that to be gay in LA is quite um, uneventful in ways that it wasn't when I was a teenager and, and young adult uh, or in a child, but it's, it's, it's not perfect, right? It's not perfect. It's still the case that, these the, you know, gay men of color experience very racist things in West Hollywood and it's still the case that there are young queer kids that like, grow up in you know in, in their in their high schools and they're still getting bullied. Sure. It's very it's still oh, nuanced, yeah. right? So um, there's there's
0: still even though there are these safe white gay places, but mm-hmm. a, a man of color in these safe spaces, there's still Subtle racism or or stratification?
1: Definitely. I mean, amongst a lot of the people I interviewed, in fact, with a lot of my friends who happen to be mostly um, other children of immigrants. It's funny enough, like they overlap with the people in the book as well. But, um, you know, Filipino Americans, um, Latinos, Salvadoran Americans. You know, just the thought of going to WeHo is very unattractive to them. They're, when Whenever it's suggested, it's like, oh, I don't want to go to WeHo because why would I want to go to a place where I feel invisibilized or excluded? <laughs>
0: invisibilized That's a new word. I hadn't heard that before. But it makes a lot of sense. Invisibilized. Boy, it's so much easier when we invisibilize that which we don't want to see. Well, wow, thank you for that education, uh, Professor. Our guest today on Keeping Democracy Alive is uh, Anthony Ocampo, professor of sociology at uh, California State Polytech Institute. His new book is Brown and Gay in L.A. You know, and in, in, in talk about safe spaces for, for white gay people in the white-dominated world. It's encouraged to be out loud and proud. <laughs> what did you find out about how families of origin and communities of color compared with the dominant white culture with regard to being out loud and proud
1: yeah i can easily cite a whole number of stories where oh, when man. the the you know this young man that i interviewed that wanted to come out because you know it's really important to own your identity sure. the reaction from parents was was <laughs> oh my gosh uh, folks will read this in the book but all sorts of things that were just really incredible, considering there's this narrative. Immigrant parents come to their this country to have better lives for their kids. Right. Um, <laughs> right. And so the, the reactions were really diverse. I had some folks that they tried to take their kids to their sons to therapy and not the good therapy, like the conversion type of therapy. Mm-hmm. There were some that tried to pray the gay away. So no. <sighs> there were some that would uncomfortable situations where moms and dads would be like, have you had sex with a girl yet? And that'd be like the first time they ever mentioned sex to their sons. Mm. Uh, But more commonly it was, it was this thing of like, um, whatever we accept you, I guess, or we tolerate you, but, but don't tell grandma or it'll, 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 break her heart or make sure no one in the like don't post it on on social media that you're gay don't be so public about it it's you can be you just be quiet about it and mm. you know don't don't mention it which is really hard because you know this is a time when these young men were really starting to become proud of what of, of being gay she sure. yeah
0: that's that's got to be hard seeing all these you know white guys who can more easily be out and proud and go to these wonderful uh parades that are frankly a lot of fun uh but to be worried about that because your family oh my goodness your grandmother might see or something like that change is slow cultural change is slow and painful and it mm-hmm. is it is happening it is happening and i read just this morning actually uh florida <clears throat> yeah uh, so <laughs> <laughs> what can we say about florida? And, and here's from the hill seven openly LGBTQ candidates running for state house or senate seats in Florida have won their primaries, advancing, wow. to, to, yeah, advancing to November's general election, where voters will decide whether to triple LGBTQ representation in the state legislature. I, I thought that was an interesting story, and it, it, it's good to hear. I mean, we were, we liberals were panicking a little while ago, but now, I don't know, and, and Florida. Wow. It seems to be at the sharp end of spears in the very hard culture war these days. I mean, it's like, really, the the culture war is intense there. Don't say gay. How does Governor DeSantis' role with regard to the don't say gay rules play in the very large, politically powerful Hispanic community in Florida? What have you found about that?
1: You know, I haven't um spent much time in Florida, but uh, I, I I do re- <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I do remember I do remember actually a couple years ago there was the most horrific um mass yeah. shooting there, the, yes. the the pulse shooting yes. in t- June, June of 2016. Yes. And I remember the initial reaction of leaders in Florida to mm-hmm. that mass shooting. Yes. And and how they a lot of them didn't mention the fact that it was mostly right. Latinx uh, victims, queer Latinx victims. They just sort of like conveniently forgot that. Mm-hmm. And then they weaponized the identity of the of the shooter to advance their Islamophobia, right? And so it's, it's, yes, we have the don't say gay thing right now, which is like, kudos to those children in Florida, students in Florida that are standing up to that bs law yes but i think like there's been a long history i mean if that's happening in orlando um which is liberal i mean i think it was more the state leaders than orlando leaders but it's still the case that i think the perception of florida from for a lot of gay folks um that live outside of florida is that it's a it's a hostile place where it's trying to shove folks back in the closet as if that's gonna make gay people and gay culture disappear
0: yeah, I, I don't live in Florida. I don't really understand it. but I, And I could say something horrible like, well, one good thing about uh, climate change is there'll be smaller Florida.
1: <laughs> oh, my God, Bert.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I know, that's terrible. But the, the Pulse nightclub shooting, that was a really significant event in 2016. And Florida's governor at the time, Rick Scott, he labeled the shooting as terrorism, terrorism against Americans. It was kind of straight-wash and whitewash what had actually occurred. Uh, because, you know, I think if people even remember the Pulse nightclub shooting, they remember, oh, yeah, it was a gay nightclub and, and a lot of people got killed and it was a horrible thing. But was it, you know, terrorism against Americans? And what, what about that long-term effect of, of, you know, Rick Scott saying Oh, it's it's against Americans, and, and leaving out the fact that it was largely for uh, the gay Hispanic community.
1: Yeah, I, I, it was it was really hurtful, and Not it was disappointing, bad. and it was devastating. I mean, the thing about Pulse, it was a shooting in a gay club mm-hmm. in Orlando, a gay, mm-hmm. gay Latino club in Orlando. That shooting reverberated across the country yes. in in queer communities of color because it hurt so much there was this notion among folks that that very much could have been one of us and i think that i think that there's something incredibly like the reason it was so emotional for me is because and and for a lot of these young men is because they came of age like they finally were able to be themselves their full selves in spaces like pulse and so Mm. it was it was a space where like as queer people of color you only get Friday night at the club to be yourself everywhere else you have to constrain your identity. Mm. So this, this juxtaposition of the moment when you feel most free, you mo you feel most safe and you're gunned down by a mass shooter. It just, it just, it devastated me. And I'm sure, I mean, I'm not even from Florida or, right. or Orlando and I didn't even know anyone. I can't even imagine for folks that are from um, that area who, for whom pulse was actually a, a place they went Um, but a lot of my, a lot of people that I interviewed were very much affected by the pulse shooting because it was just, um, it was just, it it was the same, like these places are like church for like, even so these places like church, it's like a sanctuary for them that just was obliterated in, in one evening.
0: Wow. I, I, I frankly don't remember if the shooter what happened to him? Did did I'm assuming it was a he? Did he uh, say he was trying to kill gay people?
1: It's it's pretty unclear. There's been um, sort of attempts to try to understand his motivation. Was he himself in the closet? Was right. what was going on? It's 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 really messy, and that that's the problem when you straight wash these incidents. Is you can't really get to the 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 kernel of what was actually going on because wow. you're unwilling to use the complicated language and understand these communities in such a way that you could actually try to figure out what the, what the F happened.
0: Right. Right. I, I am reminded another aside here. There was this comedian a long time ago, Bobcat Goldthwait, who was uh, imitating doing sort of a, a, a skit on a gay basher. And there's a straight white guy, like 19 years old, who's bashing this gay person, saying, "I hate you. I hate you because because you're queer, because you're a fag, and because because I'm kind of attracted to you, and I don't know what to do about it." And I, <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of that going on. People, you know, they they, it's inside. I mean, there's such a. There are people who want to say, "You're either male or female." That there's just two, you know, the macho male and the and the. You know, prissy female, or whatever. It ain't like that. There's a lot of variation, and I think we're starting. I hope the heck we're starting to get that. You know, it, it's not just the two uh, uh, roles that there can be there. That there's. I mean, so what? Who cares? You know, since when did one marriage affect any other marriage? Speaking of which, uh, one of our favorite people, of course, Judge Clarence Thomas, has. Uh. He's openly called for the repeal. Of same sex marriage, what role do you see brown gay men playing in the latest front for equal rights in, in issues like this? And you know, the, the, the assault is coming on stronger than ever, I think.
1: Yeah, I think there's examples of a lot of um, brown gay folks who have stepped up to the challenge to speak out publicly, run for office. Here in Southern California, you have Robert Garcia, who's openly gay and and Latino, who very much uses his platform to to denounce any sort of attacks on same sex marriage, wherever it's coming from. And and that's important, because if I was a young kid that was in the closet struggling, if I saw my mayor who looks like me and is like me, that would that would make me feel like there's a tomorrow when folks like Clarence Thomas are trying to drag us to yesterday
0: absolutely amazing well people are afraid i mean and fear is f- free people are afraid of what they don't know what they don't understand you know and i i have found you know among white people that when you know years and years ago they may have you know been concerned about homosexuality but they didn't realize that they know a lot of men who are gay and once they realize mm-hmm. oh okay <laughs> That's fine. You know, it's knowing people and not when you don't know, there's fear and fear is so powerful. The Republican Party is using fear tremendously. And I'm I some of the political ads I'm seeing these days, it just it shocks me how much they're going on fear. Fear of immigrants fear of immigrants invading America. And I think, you know, being a brown skinned child of immigrants here in America it plays right into it. For those people who just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Live. We're talking about Brown and Gay in LA, a new book by our guest, uh, Professor Anthony Ocampo. And they're, talk about Florida, I can't get away from it. Uh, there's a growing movement to harass and intimidate public school teachers. And a lot of them, uh, even here in New Hampshire, uh, I, I talked to a friend of mine who who runs a restaurant. He says a lot of teachers are applying to work there because they're afraid. They're afraid to teach. And this movement wants to rein them in to specifically avoid teaching anything that may make kids, quote, uncomfortable. That's an actual word they use, uncomfortable. How does this affect the topic that you're writing about, Anthony?
1: Oh, my gosh. Just last week, Bert, I I'm I'm at my university, I'm in charge of onboarding new faculty and let's just say a significant number of them said that they applied to this school in Southern California because they couldn't teach the subjects that they were experts on. Right. Race, racism, uh, potentially queer studies. It was just impossible to do their jobs. And so it's it's I you know, when you think about the ACT UP movement in the '80s, uh-huh. where the the gay community was really trying to talk about what was going on—these like massive deaths that were happening sure. and, and tragedies—silence is death was their motto, and right. I think that's a, that's very apropos. Um, and that's very much a a technique and a strat like an open strategy of of Republican lawmakers that they don't want. It's not that they don't want white kids to be uncomfortable. They don't want Folks of color to be educated right yeah. um there's that uh gosh um carl Jacoby wrote that book recently about the ivory tower and how college used to be free for for white folks but the moment it became a uh, college used, became a place where the you know folks were learning about to think freely and to talk about issues of race and um, gender and, and inequality all of a sudden um reagan started to say like let's let's close access to people of color we don't want them to be educated right and so that's why we had these tremendous tuition hikes um this this massive debt and that's something that i i didn't think about much until i read that book by carl jacoby which i highly recommend to everybody but it's it's just because things are silent doesn't mean things are going to go away If, if there's anything i've learned from these young men in my own life is that you can you can try to silence things all you want and it's going to have a way of coming to the surface and and i think that's where um, the beauty of being living on the margins right is that not having access to the mainstream means that you got to get real creative right. you got to become really creative to survive every day life but you got to get real creative to form community and what that yields are these incredible um, movements of social change. If we think about, um, I have a friend at, U- at UCLA who studies um, immigrants' rights movements and she noticed that, um, her name is Veronica Tarriquez, she noticed that the folks at the forefront of, of immigrants' rights movements were not only queer people of color, but undocumented queer people of color. Mm. And and I, I think that that's really That's something that I think is a tragedy. If that's silence, we don't learn about these amazing people. But on a different level, it's just um, like I don't know how this country can advance in a way that is healthy without reckoning with the sins of its past.
0: Well, a lot of people don't want to. A lot of people don't want to. They don't. They want, as we said, you know, teachers are afraid to teach real history. It, it, I you know, I, frankly, I love history. I do a lot of history on this show because there's so much to learn. But not learning it, yeah, that's really dangerous. And a lot of, I mean, there's been so much death and, and horrible things in history. Wouldn't we like to learn what caused that stuff and, like, not do it again? I mean, one would think. But then again, and that's really interesting about uh, keeping Reagan, you know, changing things so that uh, people of color uh, would not be become educated. There's this fear and this, this picture that's being sold out there that a lot of people are buying into that we're being invaded. We are being invaded. Uh, but America is not just white Christian people. And I, a lot of, I think, people in less densely populated areas don't, they don't see that. They don't want that to happen. But this is the reality here. And you know what? It doesn't hurt. There's really nothing to be afraid of. (laughs) Our fear is being manipulated, but there's really nothing to be afraid of. And for those who may, again, have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about Brown and Gay in L.A., a new book by our guest, uh, author Anthony Ocampa. And you say, among the men I interviewed, many feared that their coming out would somehow kill the immigrant dreams their parents had or negatively affect their family's reputation. Yikes. Tell us about that, please. And what options there are for gay men of color with regard to this fear?
1: Yeah, I think that that was a fear that a lot of immigrant parents seem to project onto their gay sons and what was interesting is that a lot of that, that didn't necessarily stop gay sons from being themselves. You know, uh, there, there's this wonderful story of one of my interviewees where, uh, despite the fact that his, he was actually one of the people that said explicitly, I feel like being gay would kill the dreams of my immigrant parents. Um, you know, he would on on social media before before parents. <laughs> You know, there was a time when people on Facebook, it, it was just like millennials. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and so, you know, he was curating a community and identity where he was openly gay. And then, of course, you have parents joining the mix on Facebook or like a uh-huh. Gen X or old, or old baby boomers on Facebook. And so um, there was a couple of times, actually, um, where respondents, interviewees said, you know, I said something about myself being gay and I was surprised that... You know, one of my aunties in the Philippines or one of my my tias here in the United States, they press like. And so in a lot of ways, that fear was magnified in the in the case of some of the men I interviewed. It was mm-hmm. not based in reality. In fact, it, when they started to come out and, and, and let folks into who they really were, would bring partners around, what they found was that um, families had the potential to be incredibly loving. And and it was surprising to them, and mm. so it was. It, it's a very scary move because oftentimes you're the first to be doing sure. this very very different thing. But um, I think a lot of men came out feeling really grateful that they did, and it helped them realize, oh hey, maybe we need to give more credit where it's due that our that our family members can actually. Work it out with you know in their own heads and 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 accept um mm. that their family member is gay because there's a lot of love in these you know there's a ton of love in these in these families as well
0: and I'm guessing you know to 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 alienate a family member is to it's got to bring hurt after a little while after a little while and you want him back in i I would think. In recent years, Hollywood has made a lot of movies and TV shows with gay people, generally white gay people. Why is queer minority representation in culture and media so important?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'll be the first to tell you, I I love a lot of those white gay shows. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, They're the only thing I had for a long time. Um, and. They were touchstone for many of the men that I interviewed as well. Um, show folk Shows like Queer as Folk, which is, like, mm-hmm. pretty much all white people. The old one, that is. Um, but I, there are a series of shows that emerged in the early aughts, um, and even now, like, shows like Noah's Ark, which is, like, a gay black sex in the city. Of course, before that, there was Paris is Burning. And there's shows like Love, Victor, which is about a Latino family and a, oh, and a gay son. It's um, what I really noticed in terms of um, my reaction to these shows is that there's something that really hits. It hits in a way that even like the white gay shows don't hit Uh because they're able to cover all facets of the identity. Everything from coming out to family obligation, everything from, um, you know, having your first gay kiss to experiencing racism. Right. I feel like those are major parts of the experiences that um that make me who i am and to erase 50% of it. <laughs> you know, it, it it's not it doesn't mean that these things don't really it can't really comprehensively capture um my experience.
0: Well, it's good to know that 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 is is happening uh and that uh you know, i can see why the right wing has so long hated Hollywood. Because they get it. They want to, I mean, they're about making money, and they want to reach as many people as they can and make their advertisers happy. And it's good to know that, uh, as you say, there's there's more of that happening, that, that the market is driving that. You note that queer people of color have been at the forefront of other social justice movements, like mm-hmm. the undocumented immigrant student movements, the Black Lives Matter movement, End of your quote. And you note that every June, which is Gay Pride Month, people are quick to hang rainbows and go to Pride events. Then, of course, they go home. It's easy and pretty much effortless. All right. What else can white allies be doing, aside from just you know, having a good time at the uh, Pride events?
1: Yeah. Um, I love that you, you reminded us that queer folks at the forefront, I mean, even when you think about the civil rights movement, there's Bayard Rustin, who— oh, right. Doesn't get the airtime that he deserves. True. Um, yes, good man. But yes, but yeah. You know, I think that the greatest lesson that I've learned has been borrowed from Black feminist thought: and, uh, Audre Lorde, bell hooks, um, Patricia Hill Collins, Kimberly Crenshaw, um, Barbara Smith. And what's beautiful about these, the writings and the and the and the line of the the line of thinking of of these these Black women is that. There's a really simple heuristic, which is center the person who exists at the margins of the margins, or at the intersection of marginalities, and literally just ask, "What does the world look like from your point of view?" Mm. Give them a space, like decenter yourself, whether it's on the race angle or the or the sexuality angle. It's a really really fun exercise to decenter yourself and understand what the world looks like. From the lens of someone who's not you, and I think that folks who are part of the dominant group, whether it's straight or white, right. they're just not used to doing that. No, <laughs> it's just like, but there's not a, re- a lot of practice.
0: There's a remarkable feeling of liberation in decentral in decensoring yourself. There really is. Uh-huh. Uh, the internet. I got to ask this: has seemingly changed everything? How has social media and the internet reimagined gay identity and community for a new generation of brown gay men? In so many ways, it's perhaps a double-edged sword. Tell us, please, about the effects of positive and negative effects of the internet, social media on gay people of color.
1: Yeah, I think that with, when when young gay men are still in school and they don't have the freedom or the driver's license to make their way to find other gay people, they have the internet at their disposal. <laughs> there are funny stories about uh, young men staying up late to go in chat rooms back uh-huh. when we had AOL. And then, of course, like now that we have smartphones, there's geolocation apps where you can find oh, other God, gay yes. people in the area. Uh, that said, I think those are also spaces that have become really um, problematic as well. <laughs> in in yeah. in grind like Grinderland, um, which is a, a geo a geo app to find gay men, there's a lot of there were a lot of profiles in Grinder that would say things like no no fats, no femmes, no Asians. Right, this Ooh. idea that if you're your body wasn't on point in the the way they believed, or you weren't, you were Asian or you were uh, effeminate. um, You were not worth talking to.
0: Mm.
1: And, and what sucks about that is if you're in a, in, in IRL in real life interaction, you can't just go up to someone that doesn't fit your mold and then like erase them with your thumb in the same way that you can, with, you can't press the block button right. in real life oh in the same way you can online. And so it's, it's, that's the double-edged sword is that, uh, in the space where gay people are supposed to find community and, and love there and, 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 you know, sex, of course, like sure. they're, they're experiencing racism and that, that obviously we know that racism has significant health effects, negative health effects and mental health, uh, psychological effects. Um, and, and we're not even we we are just scratching the surface about talking about the impact of racism in these virtual spaces.
0: Yeah, well the work has begun. There's a lot more work to do, but uh liberation, you know, decensoring yourself it's it's very very good. It can provide a lot of, you know, real freedom. And, and real liberation that, that's a very good feeling. The book is called Brown and Gay in LA. We've been uh, honored here to talk to its author, Anthony Ocampo. Thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. This is an important subject. We got a lot more work to do. Thank you.
1: It's been a joy, Bert. I, this this conversation left me um, feeling uh, full of life. So thank you so much. Oh my goodness, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Estão ouvindo esse som Pulsando seco no ar Merece nossa atenção Preparem bem os sensores Para poder capturar os usinas motores Para ouvirmos
0: If you like today's show, subscribe at the website, Keeping Democracy Alive, Stitcher or Spotify or iTunes. Don't miss a single one.